Hi, and welcome to an episode of The Conversation, a podcast by The Spectator World. I'm Amber Athey, the Washington editor for The Spectator, and I'm joined by Jay Green, a senior research fellow with the Heritage Foundation. And Jay, you have just released a new bit of research on the cross-sex hormones that in some cases are given to children and the left's contention that these cross-sex hormones actually reduce suicides among transgender children or teens. Your research not only presents your, your own study, but also points out a lot of the issues with the studies that currently exist. So let's start there. When you were going through some of these studies that the left points to to say, we have to give gender-affirming treatment to children who identify as transgender because it will save their lives. When you looked into those studies, what did you find that was troubling? Well, I mean, the first thing is that if you're going to make such a strong claim as the Biden administration does, that these are life-saving interventions, then you really need the kind of evidence that's normally required for initial approval of a drug by the FDA, which is a random assignment experiment where by chance, some people get the medicine and by chance, some people don't. And then any difference in their outcomes that are observed later, we know with confidence are caused by that drug and not by some pre-existing difference in those populations. It's important to emphasize that no such study exists for these drugs for the treatment of gender dysphoria. It has never been studied with a randomized experiment. And so we don't know with high confidence, what the effects of these drugs are. And it's totally irresponsible for anyone to assert with confidence that they know that these are life-saving. So short of this random assignment experiment, what evidence do they have? What they have is something that falls very far short and only a handful of studies. And these studies essentially are surveys of adults who identify as transgender, who are recruited as a convenience sample. That is, they're just people who they can find. They're not necessarily representative of everyone who had gender dysphoria when they were younger. And then they asked them, when you were a teenager, did you seek these drugs, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, and did you get them? And then they compared those who sought and got them to those who sought and did not get them. And the real problem with this and the way that it falls short of a randomized experiment in a very serious way is that one of the criteria for getting the drugs is that you're supposed to be psychologically stable at the time that you get them. And so one of the reasons why people might seek and be unable to get the drugs is that they started off with significantly worse psychological conditions. And therefore, when asked later if they're thinking about suicide, it's not, it wouldn't be surprising if they were to report that at higher rates. And that would have nothing to do with the effect of the drugs, but would have everything to do with how they were different to begin with. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I would think, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I have an economics degree, so I, I kind of understand how these experiments <laughs> should work. And typically, you would simply have a group that received the drug and a group that did not receive the drug and track them side by side. And that a group that did not receive the drug would include people who sought it or didn't seek it, but had gender dysphoria. And yet in this case, it's all the kids who expressed a desire to go on the drug. And I, I found that to be kind of an interesting uh, variable there. And most importantly, the thing that determined whether they got it or not in these studies was their, their a, an important factor was their initial psychological condition when it should be just chance that determined right. it. 
And that's the that's the heart of the defect. But there are all sorts of other problems. So look, there are only three studies that look at this issue, only a handful, only produced in the last two years. And so this is an incredibly thin and low quality research base for making such strong claims about how we need to change policy and change practice to make these drugs widely and readily available to minors. Now, in this new study that we came out with this week, we re-examined the issue in a better way. Now, it's, it's still short of a randomized experiment. So if the other side wants to say they're right, I think they should come forward and do a randomized experiment. They could do it, um, and they could prove it. If, but I don't think they can, actually, because I, I don't think the facts have come down on their side. But, but we did something that fell short of a randomized experiment, but was still far better than the existing three studies. And what we did is we took advantage of a natural policy experiment. That is, by chance, effectively, some states have laws where it's easier for minors to access healthcare without parental consent than in other states. And these laws were not developed having anything to do with the transgender issue, and they were developed in general long before this issue came along. And so effectively by chance, in some states, there's one extra barrier to getting these drugs for minors, and in other states, by chance, there is not. And so we compare youth suicide rates in these states over time to see if the two different kinds of states diverge. We also take advantage of the fact that these drugs were not introduced in the United States for this purpose before 2010. So there should be no difference between the two different kinds of states before 2010, and there should be after. And that's exactly what we find, but it's in the direction opposite of what the Biden administration is claiming. That is, before 2010, the extra barrier to getting the, these cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers made no difference in suicide rates because those drugs didn't even exist. They weren't even available before 2010 for treatment of gender dysphoria. But then after 2010, when it becomes a treatment for gender dysphoria, we see a divergence in suicide rates between these two different kinds of states. And it ramps up roughly corresponding to the increased usage of these treatments so that by 2020, there's an extra 1.6 youth suicides per 100,000 young people, which sounds like a really small number, but it actually represents a 14% increase in youth suicide. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm glad you point out that, you know, your study isn't perfect either, because my main point of contention would be, it could be potentially any healthcare procedure that is causing that difference that children are able to seek out, like an abortion, for example. But the fact that you said it at 2010, when the puberty blockers became available, I think helps to control for that. So that's, that's really interesting. And I, I wanted to get your take, too, on this other portion of the studies that focuses on parental consent, because in the original studies that claimed the suicides were increasing if the if the kids didn't have access to these cross-sex hormones, the ones who were able to get it in these studies had to have their parents consent to that. And you point out someone who has their parent not consent to them getting this treatment probably has a worse relationship with their parents as a result and probably then has worse mental health outcomes. So that could be another confounding variable in these studies, right? Exactly. So in, it, there are initial differences between the treatment and control in these three studies. The most important initial difference is their initial psychological condition. But another difference is that we know there's a systematic difference between 
the groups they're comparing, the treatment and control groups they're comparing in terms of the relationship to their parents, because one other barrier, as you rightly point out, to getting these drugs is parental consent. Now, it is possible under certain circumstances for kids to get it without parental consent, but that's harder. So on average, we should see um, more access when, when kids have a relationship with their parents where the parents will grant the consent relative to kids who are keeping this a secret from their parents or have disapproval from their parents. Now, that doesn't mean that parental approval or consent is protective against, is, is that parents should consent. It doesn't mean that parents need to give their consent. It means that parents need to have the supportive and loving relationship that's possible uh, when kids are out to their parents. Um, but just because you're loving and supportive doesn't mean that you have to agree with whatever your kids say they want to do. Part of good parenting is is setting boundaries and and hitting the pause button and, and being cautious about whether uh, kids should move forward with some reckless ideas that they may have. But you can love your kids and support your kids without giving in to whatever they want. But parents are coerced into giving in primarily by this threat of suicide that these researchers and the Biden administration are claiming. It's, it's a form of emotional blackmail. Right. If you don't get on board, that your kids will kill themselves. And this is getting parents and policymakers to support things that their natural instincts tell them are not a good idea. Yeah. And let's go a, a bit more general on this because one of the I think most important aspects of this debate that often gets lost by both the Biden administration and the media is a lot of the harmful side effects of these drugs that aren't captured because this the studies are are usually buried or or sort of attacked. But there are a lot of potential long long term physical effects that can occur when children go on puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones. So, so can you talk a little bit about that side of it as well? Sure. Look, we're, we're messing with, with people's basic biology, and there are a lot of serious ramifications to doing that. And because these treatments for this use are com- almost completely new, uh, that is, they didn't really exist before 2010 in the U.S., and they didn't ramp up in the frequency of their usage until 2015, we only have a few years of experience with them. So, so long-term effects would not be known because we haven't had a long time mm-hmm. of doing it. Uh, and we've never had a randomized experiment that could track those long-term effects and see if there are differences between people who use and don't use these drugs uh, in terms of other aspects of their health besides suicide. And there, there have been concerns raised about bone density, cancer risks, uh, and there are well-documented concerns with regard to permanent sterilization and, and uh, sexual impotence. Yeah, definitely. And you point out as well that a lot of the children who do experience gender dysphoria tend to grow out of it, which is usually the opposite of what parents are advised to do. They're told that they have to intervene immediately, but it seems like the the stop, wait, and see approach might be more effective in the long run. Well, look, stop, wait, and see is consistent with with standard medical practice, which is that we uh, would consider uh, a non-invasive, less invasive, and more easily reversible interventions before we would consider more drastic and irreversible interventions. But we're kind of rushing headlong into some pretty drastic interventions 
because we get desperate uh, and desperate with this course of threat that if we don't act, the kids will die. And I think once we remove that threat from this uh, issue and allow people to think about it more slowly, calmly, deliberatively, that we, I think the steam is going to be taken out of this. This is a craze and it requires new recruits constantly to keep it going. And if it gets slowed down where people just decide they're going to watch, wait and see, they're going to, going to, you know, talk to each other, see if they can address other issues that people are having. Cause look, a lot of these kids have, have real problems, lots of real problems. They're, unfortunately there's widespread depression and anxiety among young people, particularly among young girls. Um, and they're looking for solutions to their problems. Their problems are real. And I think this is being offered as a solution, but it's a false solution. And if we offer a false solution rather than trying to address the real solutions, we're going to get them in a lot of trouble. And I think that's, that's the possible explanation for why we would see an increase in suicides when these drugs are more available, is that we're pushing a false solution rather than addressing real problems with real solutions. But there are real problems here. So the kids are not the villains here. They're victims. Uh, and the parents are not the villains here. They're victims too. They're being, they're being scared into this and they want to save their kids' lives and they, they want their kids to be okay. And, and these kids are in distress and they have, they have problems. We should be compassionate towards them. We should be helpful to them. But we should also not rush headlong into drastic interventions. Yeah, I think that's so important. I saw a sort of an, an advertisement almost for transgender symptoms for children recently. And some of the symptoms were things like feeling insecure in your body or feeling uncomfortable with yourself. And I thought I was, you know, I'm a young woman. I was in high school not too long ago. Everybody feels like that when you're that age. And to try to pathologize that is, um, I think, really problematic. So going back to the research aspect of this, if you were able to design your perfect study to figure out whether or not these things actually work, how would you go about doing that? It would look, it would be a random assignment experiment like the kind that would that was necessary for approving these drugs initially. These drugs were approved by the FDA, but for other uses. Puberty blockers were developed to address what's called precocious puberty. This is where very young kids would start going into puberty at you know five years old. And it was an age that was inappropriate for them physically uh, and psychologically. And the idea was to temporarily stop. A, a child from going into puberty so that they could go into puberty at closer to an appropriate age for them physically and psychologically. The kind of random, random assignment experiment that was necessary for approving that drug for that use, we should do it for this use, which is the treatment of gender dysphoria among older kids. And so by chance, some people should who present with the appropriate symptoms where we might think this could make a difference. Uh, by chance, some of those kids would get these drugs. By chance, some wouldn't. Um, and then we could track them over time and see what the outcome was. Now, I have to tell you, both supporters and opponents of these drugs object to, the, to a randomized experiment. The supporters say, we know they're life-saving, and therefore it's unethical not to make them available to everyone who wants them. And the opponents uh, say, look, you know, we know that this is mutilation. And it's unethical to make it available to anyone. And, you know, I, I understand uh, th these concerns. And, and I'm not saying that we must have a randomized experiment, but I'm saying 
if people are going to insist that they know that 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 these are life-saving drugs, then they have to prove it. And they have to prove it with rigorous science, uh, like the kind that would be necessary for approving the drugs in the first place. Yeah. Well, I think at the very least, what your research tells us is one, these studies are very incomplete. They're not randomized and really don't reach a conclusion at all about whether or not these things save lives. And on your side, um, the additional study that you've done, I think at the very least tells us that these states that have laws allowing children to seek uh, medical care without their parents are, are probably not doing the right thing either. I think that's exactly right. We, I think what we've done is we've raised enough very serious concerns that we need to reconsider this policy and practice rush into prescribing these drugs for our young people. Well, Jay Green, Senior Research Fellow with the Heritage Foundation, thank you so much for joining the conversation today. Sure, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com.